Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. So it's May, and May is Foster Care Awareness Month. And here at FASD Hope, we want to shine a light on foster care, how many unsung heroes there are in foster care, and um, just what supports and services we really need to get on the ball and bring to foster care. And as a community, as um, parents and caregivers in the FASD community, we really need to acknowledge just things that we need to learn. And I could not think of two better parents who have been in the foster care journey than my friend Aubrey Page and her husband, Nelson Page. So we're kind of combining this today, turning this into a mom and dad cast because we actually, this first time we've done this, having, um, no, actually I take that back. We've had mom and dads come on before, but we really wanted to have Nelson's feedback in this too, because you know, there are just so many different viewpoints that we need to consider in foster care. So lengthy introduction, Aubrey, welcome back. Nelson, welcome to FASD Hope. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to talk about foster care and what we can do better, kind of like as parents, how we can have a different focus moving forward. Nelson and I have been licensed for uh, about four and a half years, but we've been doing respite for five years. Um, and I think like the attrition rate for foster parents is like, like one year normally. <laughs> yeah. So, so now we're like ancient and the you guys are seasoned, yeah. but we live in Cincinnati, Ohio. And, um, and that's what we've been fostering the whole time here. So Nelson, we probably have a lot of dads listening and thinking about either, um, adopting through foster care or becoming foster care parents or foster caregivers. What were some of your thoughts when you began the journey of becoming a foster care dad? It's not anything that was overly intimidating for me. Aubrey and I have uh, long conversed on what our family would look like. And before we got married, we knew that we didn't want to have biological children because the the younger the kids are a little bit more difficult. (laughs) So (laughs) if we could find some magical way of birthing uh, older children without going through the nine months of... uh, a, a wife that complains a lot, that would be a really, a really neat strategy. To he, take. He's not talking about you, Aubrey. No. <laughs> my other wife. But. That's right. So when actually it's funny because be, when we started, we started um, looking at domestic infant adoption and he said, can we get one that's like already potty trained? And I'm like, that's stupid. No, we're not doing that. <laughs> Bringing home a baby. Like this was always our plan. And then then God had a different plan. So absolutely, so, I mean, absolutely. We're, we're certainly not a, a typical uh, family that you'll see either through adoption or, or foster care. And I think that a lot of uh, different families uh, come into foster care um, because they've had infertility issues. Um, and so I, I, I think that um, that has begins to set the stage for a lot of, uh, I, I don't want to say misconceptions, but um, poor expectations. Yeah, different yeah. goals, which is actually our first recommendation for families. So 
um, before we, we dive in our conversation, the topic is five things we want you to know about foster care. And again, I could not think of, of two better parents and people who have been involved in foster care than Aubrey and Nelson. Also knowing the history of your family, because it's a pretty amazing history too. So before we talk about our five things that you want to know, can you just tell us a little bit about your journey and, um, you know, and where you guys are now and how far you've come? Yeah, so we, um, we got licensed um, and we started out actually with respite, which is I think you have to start with where we met. No, <laughs> we can go back that far. That's cool. I, I I know the story, but I know our our audience would love to hear it. We did. We we. That's true. We never had um, intentions of having biological kids, um, so that wasn't ever part of our story. So our desire to look for um, we actually, you know, we started out with domestic infant adoption. Adoption was our original goal, and then we shifted to foster care, and then our goal became not adopting, but just parenting at that point. And so we started doing respite and they sent us all these like four-year-old kids that I, I feel like at that age, they're constantly trying to kill themselves. They're like sticking their finger in something or, I mean, it was, it was way too much. Um, one weekend I had like twin four-year-olds and a baby and I was like, what am I doing with my life? And then we had an older kid that stayed with us and they actually ended up that's our one of our forever kids um and we told our agency we were like this is it like we need school-age kids don't send us any more of those little kids that's not our jam and so that we shifted our we went from thinking we were gonna domestically adopt an infant to now being like I really don't want to have a baby in my house um just send us the, the older kids so that's what we did and I don't even know I don't know how many kids have come through our home but we uh our our first placement is one of our adoptions and, um, and then we adopt or we fostered a few more kids, sometimes short term. So like kids who had been um, removed for their, from their home for whatever reason, disrupted is what it's called in foster care when a kid is kicked out um, and they have to find a new placement. So we would sometimes be like that temporary placement for the kid. Um, so we've had kids all the way from 10 to 18 and a half. Um, we helped one child emancipate. We've done um, a kinship placement. Um, and then a couple other kids moved on to other placements because we were just, they were staying with us temporarily. And then eventually we looked for a sibling for our oldest and, um, and then now we feel very complete as a family. So we still participate in a couple programs. We do one program through a nearby county where um, kids are uh, arrested for domestic violence and they're deemed low risk, then we can keep them for the night so they don't have to spend the night in juvie and they find that has better um, outcomes for kids because staying in juvie can be very traumatic. And oftentimes it's just a family in crisis and everybody just needs a breather, right? So it's almost just like, I'm like doing respite for the night and then they go back to court the next day and decide next steps. So that's a great program. We just signed up to do another program where we provide respite for biological families who have kids with mental health diagnoses. So these kinds of things, ways that we can still be using our license without planning on taking a, a long-term placement. Um, so that's where we're at now. That's amazing. One more before uh, we start talking about our, our five things you want to know, either Nelson or Aubrey, what skills do you think in this journey in being a foster care provider and a foster care parent um, and just being in the foster care system, what skills or traits do you think have helped you the most in this journey? Routine. Yeah, so Nelson and I are both <laughs> Nelson and I are both in the military, 
And yes. um, I, I do think that that has, um, has helped us, which doesn't, doesn't sound like you're like, oh, well, definitely you should go to Afghanistan before you become foster parent. No, but it, it has helped us because we're very consistent. We can make a really mean routine, which is what kids from trauma need. And so it, it has helped us. Yeah. That's why I like giving people tips through what I do, because I've been there, done that. And we're going to share Aubrey's information, the CASH collab and, and everything that she does. One final thing (laughs) I keep saying one final thing, and I promise this will be the last thing before we start Nelson, when could you tell that Aubrey went from being like foster care mom, you know, supportive foster care mama to this advocate on fire? Because that's the only way I can probably describe her is just this amazing advocate, you know, in FASD and neurodiversity and foster care and equality in so many areas. She is an advocate, like role model for me. When could you see the shift happening from like, okay, this is something, yep, we're a family and everything to, wow, we're going to like change the world with this. <laughs> and pause. <laughs> the hospital. Either. It um yeah. No, it was long before that. So you have to understand Aubrey's personality. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, this is good. This is good. I like this. So um it, <laughs> I don't I'm have I'm gonna regret this. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with like an appropriate analogy, but if you picture um uh somebody that's extremely focused on one thing. Um, that is Aubrey, and it depends what that one thing is. So I think it started uh, with our first placement and uh, when the school wasn't giving him the educational resources he needed. Uh, and then the, the whole fight with the IEP mm-hmm. and working with the teachers and the special ed classrooms and then hiring a lawyer and then getting the state involved. And this, like our small town school district was like, what kind of woman is this? Like she's going to bring us down all because we're not educating the kids. Like we're required to. Um, so I, I think Every that district was, she is, she is one determined tank and she's going to plow through anything. Well, and, and, and part of that fight happened while I was in Afghanistan. Um, the IEP was changed against, um, without my permission while I was in Afghanistan. And so, um, yeah, that you were right. That did happen before the email from the hospital. The email from the hospital was saying that they didn't want to meet with me over FASD. And I was like, you don't even want to meet with me for an hour over FASD. Like this system is too broken. We got to do yeah. something about it. So yeah. that's what got, got me started. And something else I wanted to mention when we were talking about um, the military and how it prepared us, I think the other thing that it does that I think a, a lot of foster parents, I think it's a helpful trait. Um, we don't give up on the mission, right? Nice. So when you take a placement, a lot of parents are like one toe in. I don't know how this, you've got to be like 100% dedicated. And we have had some tough days, but knowing that like this is, we made this commitment to this kid and this is what we're doing, period, um, was, I think that's what got us here. That's great. That's great. All right. So let's talk about the five things you want people to know. This is May foster care awareness month. People are talking about it. We got to get a conversation going. We just have to get some action going. You know, we, we are, have been in standstill for, for too long. What do you want people, not just people in the FASD community, not just parents and caregivers, but people anywhere. What do you want them to know about foster care that you have learned through your journeys? 
Um, so one misnomer I think that we and a lot of people had about foster care is that the, the adoption is like a big aspect of, of the plan, right? Like a lot of people get into foster care to adopt. Um, and as we started poking into it more and learning from um, former foster youth and adoptees, we were like, oh, that's not, that's not the goal. The goal of foster care is to send the kid home and to their, with their family, right? Reunification, family. yep. Um, and so we, we realized that we needed to go into foster care with the plan of parenting, not the plan of adoption. So a lot of people like, and again, we have never tried to have biological kids. We have no history of infertility, but my understanding from a lot of my friends who have struggled with infertility is that when they go into foster care, they have this idea in their mind that there's going to be some level of permanency involved. And then their heart gets broken. And then they're like, I can't do this. It hurts. But I think if you go in like joyful, like it's so great, we get to be a part of this kid's life for the season or for forever. We don't know. It's kind of like, but I want to support their parents as much as I can, because I feel like if we're talking about a redemption story for a kid to be able like to have to be removed because of safety issues and then be able to go back home, like that's so beautiful. So um, I support biological families. I support um, reunification. Um, and I want more foster parents to do that because I think that that's, that that's the right thing to do. Um, but I, a lot of it starts with our mindset and how we see the goal of us being foster parents. There's a lot of um, foster parents that believe that um, the biological families um, are bad, which is why their children are in foster care. And so anytime that there's talk of those children going back home to their families, the foster parents get upset. Uh, and say the system's broken or the judge is evil and this is the wrong decision. Um, as if uh, anytime that someone struggles, um, all of a sudden you lose parenting rights, uh, which is not how the system works. That's not how the constitution works. The constitution protects your right to, to parent. And uh, of, of really important note to what you said is that um, if you have a disability, you are more likely to have your children removed so if we could perhaps imagine that our kids' parents are, have experienced trauma, for sure, right? That's definite. Um, perhaps they struggle with substance abuse disorder, but what, what, else, what if they perhaps also have FASD? Yep. And then if we say, oh, well, the kids aren't safe to go back there, are we saying that our kids don't deserve to have families? Maybe the alternative is that we provide accommodations for that family so that they can parent safely. Um, and we don't just say, do this thing. And because uh, working case plans, the, the county gives you things you have to check off and that's what allows you to get your kids back. Working case plans is a huge executive functioning test. You got to go to this place and get this form filled out and do this training at this location. You got to go for so many weeks in a row and it's like, what? So if you can't do the executive functioning necessary to, to accomplish all of that, then we just say, ah, you don't deserve your kids back. We, sh we shouldn't we shouldn't take people's kids for disability. So um, how do we change our approach um, to be able to better support them? And a lot of times it's the foster parents because we're the ones that are like super invested in this case. So can we set the person up with something different? Can we advocate for them to the county so that they get whatever they need? Um, we can be a really positive force for that. So the next leg of that stool is you shouldn't take someone's kids away from being poor. Yeah. Yeah which if you can imagine, if, if you don't have family that's nearby that can help out taking care of the kids, if you can't afford daycare, like life gets hard and you have to go to work and COVID has school closed 
and uh, your car's broken and you're stressed out um, and it's, you don't have financial resources and therefore your kids get taken away. Or my other thing that I picture in my head sometimes is like this whole thing with COVID. What if you had a child with FASD that you had no idea you had a child with FASD because we don't talk about it either prenatally or postnatally. Um, and things are increasingly difficult because it's not an ideal situation for a child that's FASD to be trapped in a house that's, you know, parents are in and out, whatever. They've lost that structure. Um, they've lost that accountability. And so things are tough and you don't know how to parent. And so you have run out of all of your safe parenting tools. And so maybe you choose some unsafe parenting tools, but you're just really trying to make it work. Like you're desperate. Um, so that's a, that's a failure on society's part to support these people adequately, right? That's not a failure on their part. So how do we shift how we're thinking about foster care in light of that information? Excellent. And thinking about what you said too, about the parents a few months ago, I interviewed a, a DHS um, supervisor. And when I educated her a little bit, just, just brought awareness about FASD. And when she started learning it, she came back on the show and she's, you know, and I said, I asked you to think about, you know, some of the kids that you, you know, might have that you, you know, know are undiagnosed. And she's like, I'm actually thinking of the parents. And that, you know, really makes you think of, it makes you realize how cyclic and how systemic this is that, like you said, we have to go back to the root. We have to go back to further than the root of what's going on with the kid. We got to go to the root of the parent, even the group root of the grandparent. It's, it's such an ingrained systemic health crisis. Well, and I say this a lot, but for FASD prevention is intervention. If we do not intervene with these lovely people who just have a lack of access to services, then we will be working out from a prevention standpoint of trying to prevent them from substance use disorder. Over, 30, or over a third of individuals with FASD will struggle with substance use disorder. And it's because of some biological differences, but also because society is not recognizing what's going on and they're using it as a coping strategy. And so, um, so yeah, for sure, we have got to look at this, this whole thing differently. What is another thing that you'd like people to take home from this conversation about foster care? Um, so uh, <laughs> I don't know how to phrase it, but just go to therapy. That's what I want you to. That's what I want you to know. Um, and this this could be true for all parents, but for some reason, I'm sure there's some study that has found it. I feel like people who experience childhood trauma are drawn to be foster parents. Um, this I think that you know statistically it's higher. Um, we want to see change for other generations, I think. If, if, um, if you go into foster care or foster parenting with a spouse that is so-so, you'll get divorced. <laughs> you need to start off on, you need to start off on really good grounds, um, a good relationship. And that is, um, obviously like we, each of us have our own like individual therapy that we've had to address that affected each other. Um, in our relationship and our ability to work together and and parenting right like my trauma I was projecting onto my kids because I had not I thought I had I've been in therapy since I was 12 I thought I had dealt with it but you don't know and so maintaining that not thinking oh I have I have healed myself because just in I I feel like when you get married I thought it was an okay person and then I got married and I was like oh my gosh, I'm really messed up. So if the same thing happens when you become a parent, you're like, oh no, I totally got this. I've been to like so many hours of training. 
and then it happens and you're like, oh no, no, mm -mm, no, not ready. So um, making sure that you're continuing to deal with what is happening in your past so that you can separate in your mind what's happening with your child now with what has happened in your past before. I've heard a lot of times um, parents, foster parents disrupting kids. And the reason I was like, that's not the reason. I mean, that's what you're telling yourself, but the reason is something deeper. It is something that they triggered in you from your past because what you're describing is not that big. So, um, so going to therapy is a huge part of being a successful foster parent, but I would argue probably any parent. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you, and I know you've used this analogy before, Aubrey, you have to make sure you have on the oxygen mask before mm -hmm. the kid does, you know, I mean, you, you always want the kid to have the oxygen mask on, but you, they can't get it on unless you have yours on first. So yeah. um, the escalations in my home went down significantly when my escalations went down. Okay. Wow. So I, we oftentimes talk about escalations in the context of children only, but I have escalated many, many times. Right. And that's on me. So sometimes I'll be like, yeah, we had two escalations this weekend. One was me, one was the kid, but I, and we've got to recognize the part that we play in it. We may be desperate for not knowing what to do in that circumstance, but that doesn't mean that we don't impact the situation. So as we make ourselves able to cope, to regulate better then we can help our kids regulate better. Excellent these are just things that really make you think and really make you just realize what, what role you're playing in this child's life. And not only the child, but the family and then yep. your family, you know, it's like this ripple effect, you know, it starts, you think it starts small, but it just goes on and on and on. So I'm so glad you guys are sharing this. What's another thing that you'd like parents, potential foster parents, caregivers to know about foster care? And actually, I talked about this. I don't know. This is going to come out in May. But if you go back in my history on my uh, the CSH Club's Instagram, um, which I will give all the information for, by the way, in program notes, my video today was um, listen to the adult version of your kids. Um, so this would be that example. I listen to former foster youth. Um, I have learned so much by being in Facebook groups that former foster youth are in and where they're the privileged voices. In other words, they get to say whatever they want and the rest of us listen which is valuable because when they say, you're like uh, our first instinct, anytime we hear the adult version of our kids say something negative, we're like, oh, I do it because of this. You know, we try to justify ourselves um, in the case of adoptees or adults with FASD or whatever it is. So we have to take a step back and think like, why am I being so defensive? Um, do they have a point? Like there are times when I've read stuff and I have told Nelson about it. And I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that. I just have to like sit with it. And I think that's good because, uh, we, you know, I think we all as adults think, Hmm, maybe that part of my childhood wasn't great, but foster youth have so much less control over their lives. Um, and foster parents, because of all of the rules of the system, sometimes take the controlling part too far. And so like, I've learned a lot, um, from, the foster youth that are in there about uh, like how dehumanized they felt when their foster parents used whatever certain discipline tactic um, because they had already been uh, bounced around from home to home anyways. Um, how their foster family made them feel like they weren't actually part of the family when they went on family vacation without them or how they would all the foster parents would buy new clothes for the beginning of the school year for all of their biological kids but not for the foster kids. 
So things that you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that would hurt. But also how am I doing that in my own home? Like what, what lesson do I need to take away from that? Um, I think is really important. Uh, another one is like listening to former foster youth talk about um, disruption and the impact of a family giving up on them and then moving to a new home. And then they have these stories of just multiple homes and each one is just another family that doesn't care about me. And that's certainly something that's impacted me a lot. As adults, we can reason out like we didn't have the resources or I didn't feel equipped or it had a negative impact on my kids. We can say whatever. Um, and I'm not saying there aren't legitimate we're, reasons for. Like we've, we've had kids that were disrupted that came to us because the parents were getting a divorce. Like that's a parent issue that goes back to the previous point of get therapy, um, but it impacts the kids. And, and that's a, don't take kids if you're not ready for it because it's, it's a lot of work and it impacts them forever, that, their, their entire life. That loss of connection does permanent damage. And we know because we have parents and kids who have had disruptions like gone instantly out of a family that they lived in for years. Um, and the healing process for that was worse than any childhood domestic violence neglect they had experienced previously. That experience was worse. And so we take our responsibility. If we ever say yes to a placement, we take that as like, that's an ironclad commitment to this child. We don't take any placements we would not be willing to adopt. And there's, you never know stuff. Like you may find out stuff later. You had no idea of FASD being one of the key things that we usually find out about later, but that's how it works with biological kids too, right? Sometimes you don't know until later. And I, again, I'm not saying there's never a reason just to disrupt because there's like um, challenges with siblings. And so you have to weigh trauma impacts on different kids, but the disruption can be done in a really positive way where we're establishing a good relationship with the next family. It's a slow transition. We introduce each other. We still see each other. That kind of stuff can be a positive disruption versus get out of my house tonight. I will drop your stuff off in trash bags at the other family's house, which has happened more than once for us. And you're right. It, just thinking about, we don't stop to think how dehumanizing that is. I mean, we wouldn't, it just, it's just something we don't even consider. Just kind of like when we talk about FASD and we assume people know you shouldn't drink alcohol while you're pregnant. You know, it's, it's an assumption, you know, we assume, okay, this disruption, some, you know, social worker is going to help make it yeah. somewhat, you know, they feel like, you know, a human being and not just like you said, being just quickly taken out, you know, the message is I cannot be loved. I'm not worthy of love. Um, I'm broken. I don't belong anywhere. Like these are the things that they hear. Um, and we, you know, many of us grew up in like pretty typical households, nothing major. Um, and some of us still walked away with that kind of messaging. So can you imagine if not only have I been left by one family, because many young kids perceive foster care that way um, for their first family, uh, but now I've been left by two or three or four or, you know, like I, I, it kills me how many kids are sitting in residential because they've been disrupted so many times. Yeah. Um, and so many of those kids having FASC that the foster parents don't know what to do with because we're not training them enough. Which is why one of the big goals we want to see, like we see in Minnesota and Maryland and hopefully other states is training of, of foster care caregivers and, and anyone involved in foster care to know about FASD and to get that education so they know that it's a brain-based 
physical disability and that it is lifelong and, and that we have to change, not the kid, we have to change the way we are, whether they're in our lives for a season or whether we're their forever home. We have to make sure that we're the ones that need to, to change and accommodate. Okay. So um, that helps us a lot because we are, our fourth tip that we have for you is to educate yourself about trauma, which ideally is a requirement in every state at this point. Um, trauma-informed care is almost like a, a catchphrase that we use a little bit too much because so, so, so few of us actually do it really well, but um, constantly learning more about trauma and how it impacts the brain. Um, and it, it, it does impact the brain physiologically. One myth that I had heard, um, of course, like us both being in the military, we're interacting with um, you know, a lot of people who have different life experiences. People don't understand that childhood trauma affects the brain much more severely than, for example, an IED blast as an adult. Your brain has already fully developed at that point. Not that it's not traumatic, but it's different. Um, and so we, we really need to make sure that we are doing our part on educating ourselves about how the brain changes and um, how the brain reacts in um, situations where it doesn't feel safe. Um, the different types of um, coping strategies that kids use. So whether that's, um, I'm going to push you away because I don't trust that you're going to stay, or I'm going to eat all your food because it makes me feel really good right this minute. Um, different coping strategies that we see as like bad behavior. If we educate ourselves, we can have more empathy for that. We also want to make sure that we're educating ourselves on disabilities, right? Because we, in our head picture that we're going to get a form about this child and we're going to get all of the information and it's going to be correct. Um, but we've had friends who have had kids show up to their house that are like a different gender, <laughs> like other major aspects of it missing. Um, but also we've never had a kid that has lived in our home that um, we suspect have, has FASD or does have FASD um, that had it in their file already. Like that, no, nobody has ever come to us diagnosed. Learning about what the possibilities are and how we can best parent that. So uh, neurodiversity models, um, what we're talking about in April on our page, um, which is saying that all brains are, you know, just a little bit different and that's fine. And we're accepting those brains and we're accommodating them. Um, and so we're called the Change Starts Here Collaborative because change starts with us as parents. So how are we changing in order to accommodate these kids versus forcing the kids to accommodate to us? And so that's a big aspect of how you need to, to work to view disabilities. And no, I'm calling them disabilities and not special needs because the disability community has said that they prefer that term. Special needs is not a federally protected class. Um, and it also makes it sound like, oh, you have, you have extra stuff that you need. Whereas disabilities are just things that are- Accommodations, yeah. Yeah, you just need accommodation mm -hmm. in your environment. So parents need to learn about is diversity. So um, we, you know, the, the majority, statistically the majority of foster parents are white. Um, and um, that actually the, the big place where um, black families are place, placing a huge unsung hero role is as kinship families, which you by and large do not get paid to be a kinship family. And when I say don't get paid, I mean, you get no support, um, which is just insane to me. They will pay me to keep your niece, but they won't pay you to keep your niece. <laughs> um, so anyways, uh, but learning about um, diversity and not just saying, oh, well, my life, you know, I'm surrounded by all other white people, all other middle-class white people, and that's what I know. And so if a kid moves in, then that's what they need to know too, right? And if they do X, Y, or Z, then that's wrong and not that it's culturally different. Um, and so we need to learn a lot. There's a lot of transracial adoptees who are very vocal about their experiences. And I find that so helpful for me as a parent to challenge myself um, and what I need to know. But we did a lot of research um, 
and like background work on um, racial justice issues years before we became foster parents because we knew it was a possibility that we would parent kids that weren't our same race. So what I, what I like to tell families is if you don't, if you feel like you look around your neighborhood and everybody's white and everywhere you go, everybody's white and you don't know anything about anything else but being white, then say you're only open to white kids. That's fine. It's not a big deal. It's not racist to say that you're only going to be open to white kids. If you have a, a black kid move in and then you want, you expect them to be white, then that's racist. So how do we change our, like, just kind of recognize where we are in life. Um, we have moved. We have changed a lot about our life in order to be more accepting to the kids that move into our house um, and help them feel comfortable. Um, but not everybody can do that. So just, just keep that in mind for what kids you're, you're open to accepting. And then our last tip um, real quick is to start with respite, which we talked about that we did that. Um, but we, a lot of families are so excited about getting licensed that they want to jump right into taking a placement. And at that point, you don't even know, like we didn't know that we didn't like small children. <laughs> That's a big thing to not know. What if we had said yes to a baby as a placement? That would have been terrible. I mean, I had all of the things and we had a nursery and everything was color coordinated, but I used it 0% because I, we just, that's not our jam. So, um, so it's always good to take respite and then see what works well for you. Um, you will get that call and the call will be, you have a, um, in Ohio, we call it child characteristic check sheet that you say, these are kids I'm open to taking. And they're always going to call you with kids that aren't on your check sheet. Totally opposite. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but you can better know what you're equipped for and what you as a couple are equipped for, because you may know in your head what you're okay with and your partner is not feeling that way. So um, that's just a way to kind of dip your toe in the sand. And you can do respite long before you get licensed. There are respite providers who've never taken a placement. So that if you want to support the foster care community, that can be a way that you support them without ever getting licensed to take permanent placements. And you can just feel a little really like the fun aunt that takes kids for the weekend and, and has them do stuff while the foster parents sleep or, <laughs> or sometimes we have like business, like when we do our military stuff, we have to have the kids stay somewhere else. Obviously we don't have family clothes. So, um, so that can be another way to support. That Those are all great. our tips. That's great. I'm going to have all those tips posted. Thank you guys. I know you guys are incredibly busy, especially Aubrey. I know you're, you both have just so many things going on and I really appreciate the time you guys are taking today to talk to our audience about what you want us to know about foster care and your journeys and your experiences. As we wrap up, I like to first give you guys a platform to talk about your what you're doing, the CASH collab, everything. Please share away. Yeah. So um, in November, I started the Change Starts Here Collaborative, which is a place for parents and professionals working with kids with brain-based disabilities to find support and resources. And so um, we're releasing courses um, kind of slowly as we get geared up. There's, there's a lot of um, behind the scenes stuff that no one will see, but it takes most of, most of my time. And I'm actually working right now. And by the time this is out, I will have released a course on um, FASD, on identifying, diagnosing, and parenting um, kids with FASD. And that long-term, I'd like to release ones for social workers working with kids, um, educators, so that we can hopefully get um, kind of a, a way for anyone to learn if they're a lot of times people get that one kid and they're like I have no idea how to help this child and so they can they can use the course as a way to learn more so and then um, the collaborative is working on releasing courses on ADHD and autism and we work with all forms of neurodiversity um, we like to have neurodiverse people um, as collaborators as well 
Um, so uh, please follow us at the CSH Collab on all platforms. And then our website is the cshcollab.com. And if you do slash resources, it has a lot of different things there. And then slash FASD has a lot of, a lot of FASD focused stuff because that's my goal with the collaborative is yes, to educate people of all neurodiversity, but every course that launches on the website, it has to teach a little bit about FASD. FASD. That's because, awesome. Because people got to know. I know the CSH is a family program because I know um, Nelson's in it. I know you have, it's like a family yeah. uh, business, which is awesome too. Yeah. So if any of your listeners have content to provide, they can reach out as well and produce courses. He's my business manager. Also. Yes. Thank you, Nelson. <laughs> and and- you'll get paid if you produce a course and people buy it. <laughs> nice. Nice. So if you're listening out there, please reach out to Nelson or Aubrey. And also to let you know too, the CSH collab is a link on our resources page on FASDHope.com. The CSH collab definitely. And I love hearing about these courses all having FASD education in them so that people you're gaining more awareness right there. And then I love that you're educating um, not only parents and caregivers, but social workers, other, um, because we do get a lot of, uh, feedback from audience members who say, I know a teacher who wants to learn about FASD or I know a social worker. So that's awesome. You guys are filling such a wonderful need. And just to let you know, Aubrey, this is like our year anniversary of knowing each other, because when I started podcasting a while back ago, I met you and you were on another FASD podcast I hosted. And then you were my very first guest on FASD hope. So I am forever thankful for that because I'm so impressed. Thank you. And thank you guys both for what you do, because um, I just, from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate all the contributions. Not only do you make to our country and to our community, but especially to FASD foster care, just you guys are our advocate warriors. That's probably the best way I could describe you. So yeah, you can say that a different way and say that we're really tired <laughs> <laughs> and they need respite. So people come on, <laughs> help, help them out, help the respite people out. So let's end on a hope takeaway. I'm affectionately calling this the mom and dad cast because we get two wonderful pages um, today. And I'm going to start with Aubrey first, um, can you give us some words of hope? And then we'll end with Nelson, just for anybody out there, words of hope, especially since we're talking about May being foster care awareness month. Yeah. So I think, um, one of the kind of the most tragic things I've heard, uh, someone take away from a training with FASD is they said that at the end of the training, they asked the trainer, what hope do I have for a child that was exposed prenatally? And the lady said, none. And that's a lie. That's not true. Um, and that's why I was so excited when you launched your podcast, because that goes way rebuts that. Right. Um, and so I want to say that for sure that um, individuals with, with FASD, individuals that have experienced trauma, individuals with autism, they all lead fulfilling, happy lives. And they are major contributors to society. And there are a lot of undiagnosed people who are doing a lot of really cool things that we don't even know because we, it's diagnosing is so difficult, but this is not, this is not a death sentence. This is an opportunity for us to learn more about our kids and to parent them in a way that um, helps support their brain as it is. I think that's um, empowering that I can be the change that allows our family to function better. No, you go. <laughs> that, was, that was very beautiful. 
And Nelson, what words of hope can you give for our listeners? When our first placement moved in, they had a lot of uh, behavioral difficulties with the family. And I remember a lot of people always saying that that kid is all kids deep down inside are good kids. Um, but what ours I was thinking was not, they had a lot of, a lot of just intelligent, bad decisions that were being made, a lot of fighting, and it was draining on all of us. And here I am four years later, kids doing awesome. Um, I love them. Uh, the family's strong. We're getting along. And I know now that they are a good kid and they are doing awesome and excelling. And I'm very proud of them. And if I could go back in time, like the old me would be like, nope, that's a bad kid. We have, we, you can gain so much perspective, um, you know, at the end of it. And that's what I try to give parents who are in the middle of it is perspective for the end. Um, but it's, it's, it's really hard. And I, I can appreciate that it's really hard. Um, but I like to think sometimes when I look at our family today, I think I could have missed this. If we had decided that that placement was too hard and that we couldn't make it, like we wouldn't have what we have today. And that makes it 100% worth it. I love that. And we are going to end on that note. So if you want to reach out to Nelson or Aubrey at the CSH Collab, you can get that information not only on their website, which will be posting all of their information and their handles and whatnot, but we'll also be sharing it um, in today's episode notes and on fasdhope.com slash resources. Nelson and Aubrey, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Take care, everybody. And don't forget, May is Foster Care Awareness Month. Be that change. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com. Or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember, to be informed, take care, and always have hope.